It was a, uh, a privilege to study Philippians with you over the past few weeks and months, um, but I am pretty excited about our study this morning. Uh, we're beginning a series of sermons uh, through the, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, that will trace out some important themes. And the purpose of doing this is to prepare our hearts for Holy Week, for Easter, coming in the beginning of April. Um, on the Christian calendar, Lent is the term, the, the time of year that precedes Easter. And in this time of year, uh, we take a chance to renew spiritual disciplines, uh, to reflect on spiritual growth. Typically, historically, believers have practiced fasting, self-denial, in order to spiritually prepare for Easter. Our lives essentially become more and more focused on the passion of Christ, on the resurrection we celebrate on Easter as we discipline ourselves, as we reflect on what Christ has done for us. Uh, so uh, most people, though, today identify Lent with denying ourselves of coffee, or which probably wouldn't be a good idea this morning, uh, or meat. Uh, yet don't discount how those small areas of discipline connect to deeper uh, spiritual preparation for Easter, um, kind of a physical denial that connects with a spiritual hunger we need to experience for Christ alone. Ultimately, this time of year, Lent, allows for self-examination, for prayer, for spiritual renewal uh, as we prepare ourselves for the celebration of Easter. And in order to prepare well, we'll be spending our time in only one gospel um, because we want to get a picture from Luke specifically as we thematically set the scene for Easter. So uh, our corporate worship time will draw from uh, sections of Luke. It won't be one long section, but I'm going to draw from uh, several sections throughout the gospel of Luke allowing God's word through this method to challenge our hearts to follow Christ in very specific and very difficult ways during this special time of year. So this in our first week of study goes back to the start of Jesus' public ministry in Luke chapter 4. So if you would open there this morning. Here, uh, where we find ourselves in Luke 4, Jesus' role in God's redemptive plan comes to a crisis point, And it's at the very beginning of his ministry. Uh, the, the Messiah faces a test that in the end confirms God's faithfulness to him and to us. So that's why I've titled the sermon this morning, Following Christ Through Every Test. Again, our text this morning is Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. And the big idea we're going to continue to chase down and look at from different angles is just this. Following Christ through testing confirms God's abiding faithfulness. Following Christ through testing confirms God's abiding faithfulness. Follow along as I read the text this morning, beginning in, chapter, in Luke 4, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, 
I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until the opportune time. From the previous chapter in Luke, we discover a twofold emphasis uh, in that chapter on Jesus' divine authority and his genuine humanity. Divine authority or divine favor in the baptism account, remember, it says there, this is my beloved son, God declares from heaven, this is my beloved son, I am pleased with him, or uh, my favor rests on him. And his humanity is revealed in the genealogy just traced at the end of chapter 3, ending with this statement, Adam, the son of God. So Luke 3.15 also proclaims the heart of the people longed for a Messiah. So there's an anticipation that's building throughout chapter 3 to this account we find at the beginning of chapter 4 where Jesus is declared the new Adam facing intense testing in the opposite environment of the first Adam because remember Adam, the first Adam was very, quite comfortable in the garden, right? Jesus is, is not experiencing any of that comfort. Uh, Luke 4 is actually the second time in all of Scripture where Satan interacts directly with a human being for the purpose of testing. Here also, Jesus is set up as the new and better Israel. The 40 days of fasting reminiscent of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The passages Jesus quotes throughout in response to Satan are from Deuteronomy. A direct statement of God's intention here in this passage of setting up a stark contrast between Jesus, the new Adam, the better Adam, the new Israel, the better Israel, and the first Adam, and, and, and the nation of Israel, the failures there. And in all of this, this vivid scene portrays a life wholly trusting God's faithfulness. And there are two particular ways, as we study the passage, that we too can follow Christ through testing, that reveal God's faithfulness. Two ways that this passage reveals for us God's faithfulness. The first being this. Following Christ through every test means completely trusting God's providence. Following Christ through every test means completely trusting God's providence. We see this uh, in verses 3 and 4, 9 through 12 specifically, Jesus' response, the interactions with Satan. Jesus' successful encounter with the devil reveals how thoroughly dedicated he is to God's will and how deeply he trusts in the providence of God. Jesus will only take the road that God asks him to follow. He won't take shortcuts. He won't cut corners. He knows that a successful walk with God only goes where the Father leads, regardless of any difficulties or challenges along the way. After all, remember the first, the first few verses of chapter 4 confirm it's the Spirit of God moving in Jesus that guides him, leading him into the wilderness. And this should be reminiscent in our minds of the story of Job. 
where God authorizes this testing. So the spirit of this passage is this isn't something that is out of God's hands or unexpected or unanticipated. There is nothing that occurs apart from God's consent. Thus, Satan's attacks are questions not necessarily directly attacking God's control, but attacking the manner at which God's plan unfolds, his providence. To accomplish this testing, Satan attacks Jesus' sonship twice in verses 3 and verse 9. Why does he do this? Satan knows, that what, knows what is at stake, and he makes an appeal to Jesus' sonship in a rather fascinating way. The first attack in verse 3 uh, challenges God's providence over Jesus' immediate needs. Essentially, well, Jesus, God surely doesn't want you to starve in the desert, right? Uh, so you, the mighty son, should just turn this stone into bread. Provide for your needs. Meet your, mo- meet your basic needs under your own power. But the nature of this challenge is not necessarily for Jesus to be strong or to show his power, but it is for Jesus to be independent. Independent from God's plan, independent from the Father himself. But such a disposition is not true strength at all. It's the ultimate weakness. Such independence leads only to failure. In the priorities of life, uh, life itself is not defined by bread or comfort at all. Instead, life is defined by truly doing God's will, depending on his leading. To follow God is to truly live. In the second appeal in verse 9 to uh, Jesus' sonship, Satan questions God's providential care over Jesus' life itself. As if taking a hint from Jesus' methodology, Satan quotes scripture, Psalm 91, uh, completely out of context, which is probably not too surprising considering who's quoting the scripture. And how does Jesus respond? His status as God's son is a commitment not to show a prestige, but to a strange path of humility, service, and ultimately death. That's ultimately what we're all looking toward, right? This is what this season prepares us for, the Holy Week, Easter. Yet as the life and death of Christ reveals, there are hard paths to follow in God's will. And as Christ's resurrection reveals what we are anticipating with Easter, God gives life. We can trust ourselves to the one true God because then we will truly live. God is faithful in his providence over every immediate need and he can be trusted with our very lives. Satan also makes an appeal in verses 6 and 7 to his power over this world. Though Satan does possess great authority, he he really can't grant this wish. It's uh, at least not in the fullest sense, the sense that Satan is trying to communicate. Uh, The proposal essentially is delusional. It's a lie. Um, Although John's gospel confirms in chapters 12 and 14 and 16 that Satan is the prince or ruler of this world, and 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world is under the control of the evil one, such power, again, is only temporary and is delegated. Because again, uh, the chapter here this morning, Luke 4, the Spirit is leading. God is in control of this entire encounter. And Satan will face ultimate defeat. 
God's kingdom will rule in the world. And here and now, here in Luke 4, is just where God's kingdom tightens its grip a little bit more on Satan's power. And Jesus must choose between a temporary, worldly, doomed kind of power or the eternal power that glorifies God alone. So some questions then. How are you tempted or tested to misunderstand your adoption into God's family? Satan used Christ's sonship as a means of sowing seeds of doubt and attempt. But don't misunderstand what it means to be God's child. This isn't a free pass to an easy life. We aren't guaranteed the best jobs or happy families, uh, success in school. We don't get a sudden boost in IQ, which is what I would want, probably. Um, You don't get uh, an increased social media presence or you're not cooler all of a sudden when you become a child of God, sadly. Don't allow your flesh and the devil to deceive you in thinking your adoption indicates anything, but there will be difficulties that lie ahead. It will not make your life easy. You will have the grace of God to enable you, yes, but it doesn't guarantee the easy way, the simple way, the straight way. Trust in God's faithful care for you and trust that he knows what's best. I know it's hard. It's hard for me. (laughs) I always try to make sense of things, try to figure things out. That's the way I work. Things don't make sense half the time. The way things happen, the way things unfold, But see Christ's example here in Luke 4. In the face of derision, social isolation, physical pain, hunger, and even death, trust in God's providence. Also, what does it mean to live? How do you complete the phrase, you haven't lived until blank? There are countless things that distract us from God. I think We live in an age where diversion and distraction are rather lucrative. They drive entire industries. Television, movies, social media, video games, all of it. It's distraction. It's it's attempt to divert us. We go to movies to kind of shut off, right? You haven't lived, actually, until you've radically pursued God's glory. What appetites? serve as sources of temptation for you. You know, it it, it isn't bad to want things. Desiring is essential to being a human being. It's good that we feel hunger. (laughs) That way we eat food and we don't perish, die, die away. The problem arises, though, with the object and satisfaction of these desires. Any and all desires we possess all zero in on this one truth. We are searching for God. We hunger for him. Find your satisfaction with him. Also, where are you too self-reliant? Too independent. Remember, Satan was tempting Jesus to independence. And this misalignment of our desire, our desire for independence traces its way back to the fall. The first Adam and Eve Again, a character trait, this, this desire for independence that isn't terrible in its own right, but becomes twisted when we buy into this myth of self-reliance. It's just not true. <laughs> Man, I wish it were true. I wish I could do things in my own power, and I do in a, in a sense, right? 
Um, But the ultimate sense is that we, you and I, we are wholly and completely reliant on another person for every aspect of our existence. Every aspect. There's no aspect that's exempt. We are dependent on God. Is God that person that you rely on that much? Do you cultivate that reliance? Do you understand it? Do you, do you reflect on it? Do you believe that God sustains every aspect of your existence? The truth is that God's providence is tricky and it's difficult because it challenges our assumptions about human freedom, about chance, about luck, about how things should unfold or don't unfold. It destroys our, con- our conceptions of comfort what it means to be comfortable, what it means to be uncomfortable. God's providence destroys that, the truth of it, the reality of it, the way it is. God's providence is both sweet and bitter. And that's hard to understand. There are weighty and heavy promises that lift us, that encourage us, but there are also hard paths to walk. In both instances, there is a singular reality. He walks with us. The Lord is near. Christ has gone before. Christ intercedes for us, for you, for me, with divine authority. Rely on him. Trust him. Follow Christ by trusting in God's providence. This isn't a promise of a life of ease and self-actualization. It isn't a life of independence or popularity. This is instead a life of eager self-denial for the sake of the riches found in Christ. Jesus surrendered himself to the will of the Father, to God's providence, regardless of the difficulties or blessings found there. He serves as our example to do the same thing, fully trusting in God's faithful watch care over his life. Not only this, but there is a second way we follow Christ through every test, and God's abiding faithfulness becomes clearer to us. It becomes revealed to us. And that is following Christ in every test means using God's means to accomplish God's work. Following Christ in every test means using God's means to accomplish God's work. We see this in Jesus' responses in verses 4, 8, and 12. Throughout this passage, along with attesting to doubt the providence of God and go his own way to be independent, Jesus is tempted by the notion that he deserves the praise for what is about to happen, and that he can determine his path to that end. While the first point largely examines Satan's tactics, um, the general spirit of the passage, the second point draws from Jesus' example. So an, an explicit way, following Christ's example for how we respond. Quite simply, already walking in obedience to the Spirit, again in the beginning of chapter four, Jesus continues to rely on God's self-revelation God himself to overcome. In this, Jesus exemplifies just how deeply our life, the the man and woman of God, must follow certain clear principles expressive of God's will in Scripture. The choice of text used by Jesus has been hinted at. I hinted at it above, but I want to reemphasize it here and kind of draw out a couple points here. Jesus quotes from three verses, Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.13, in Deuteronomy 6, 16. 
This passage relates to Israel in the wilderness. Again, kind of the parallels being drawn. Tempting God and being tested by him. These passages in Deuteronomy occur in the context of the Shema, the authoritative claim by God on Israel for worship and loyalty. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Hear this as if listening to to this for the first time, okay? Israel witnessed the very presence of God with their waking eyes. They saw his presence. Israel witnessed miraculous intervention in times of need, divine protection, yet they missed the point entirely. They failed. Repeatedly, Israel sought out solutions that were promised but apart from the dictated means God had foreordained for them to be accomplished. And when we find Luke, what we find in Luke four is a a kind of rematch of sorts. 40 years, Israel, 40 days, Jesus in the wilderness under God's direction, Israel in the wilderness under God's direction, Jesus Do you see the reality of this encounter here in Luke 4? The importance of these responses given from from Deuteronomy? Israel, God's light to the nations, had failed. God's redemption, his redemptive promise, threading itself through all of Scripture, is in jeopardy. But here stands Christ the new and better Israel, ready and willing to satisfy God's righteous demands and to do do so without resistance or exception. God's promised plan is unfolding before our very eyes because he has not abandoned humanity. He has not abandoned us. God's abiding faithfulness is on display even here. A faithfulness readily relied upon by Jesus seeking defense against the tempter in the original giving of the law. In verse 3, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is again a question of God's provision and care in the face of Jesus' intense physical and psychological pressure. And Satan makes a very natural appeal, right? It's not unnatural. He appeals to Jesus' appetites. And as stated earlier, this isn't a challenge on, on God's control per se, but God's reliability, God's providence. And in many ways, this line of questioning is strikingly similar to what we find in Genesis 3. The serpent outlines the delicious qualities of the forbidden fruit, hinting that somehow God is cheating Adam and Eve in the way he's ordained things to happen. You're missing out on something. The big questions really are, can God really be trusted? Really? Does God really know the best way to get to this point? Is that really the most effective way to do that? Really? Contrary to Genesis, Jesus responds here by proclaiming the deeper realities of hunger, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational hunger. In the Old Testament, again, Israel was allowed to hunger in order to learn that one does not live by bread alone. But they never grasped it. Never. Their obsession with the physical, material world affected their entire history. Israel continually chased idols 
physical manifestations of a deity, right? Israel continually complained about the food they were provided, their provisions. They were thirsty. Israel continually sought a human king, a human symbol. Satan attempts again here a tried and true method, really. I mean, it worked on Adam and Eve. It worked for Israel. Why wouldn't it work on this man too? Jesus was tempted to use his power as, as God's son to accomplish an end, God's end, but not using God's means. Yet Jesus continues to act in submission by not using this authority, not calling down an army of angels to confirm his power, his divine mandate. He doesn't employ colorful or logically compelling arguments, uh, which I would have liked to see him do. Uh, He doesn't lay out this irrefutable case why he shouldn't eat the bread. No, he uses single sentences (laughs) from Scripture, making no appeal beyond calling to remembrance the perfect law of God originally given. Doing God's work means using God's means to accomplish God's plan. Following Jesus reveals our deep dependence on God and his word. The devil also tries to lure Jesus to forsake God in verse 6 through the human desire for power. Most men, I mean, considering what what Satan was offering, would, would do anything to achieve that kind of power and prestige. Even more, The proposal here is for an alliance of sorts between Satan and the Son, allowing Jesus to excuse himself from all the difficulties that surely lie ahead in his ministry. This is the lie that one can bypass God's path for God's destination. Jesus is challenged to leave behind the rejection and suffering for a quick access to power. Power that is his by divine right. He is God's Son after all. But Jesus responds again by remembering the second law giving in Deuteronomy 6. Israel was repeatedly instructed to worship the one and only true God and not to follow after any other God. But that's a command they completed, complete, com- consistently and completely ignored throughout their history. So Jesus is reinforcing the original call for a singular focus to loyalty to God alone. The third temptation appears to have been a a temptation to force God's hand, force God to reveal himself, to fulfill his promise of protection, to kind of fast-track the process. Satan suggests such wonder-working protection will enhance his unique position as God's son. Furthermore, surely God wouldn't let you suffer that kind of pain or wouldn't let you die ahead of time, right? As spiritual as it sounds... (laughs) Jesus recognizes the presumption in this remark. God has not asked Jesus to engage in this test. And the action artificially creates a need for God to act. One does not dictate to God how he must fulfill his covenantal promises to us. The verse that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy 6 recalls the hardness of Israel at the waters of Meribah. The exact occasion isn't all that unique in Israel's long line of unfaithfulness, right? Except in this pretty important way, there was a complete and total failure of the entire nation, including Moses. You see, Meribah is where Moses presumed upon God, bypassed God's method for provision, 
and struck the the rock to provide water. Moses presumed, misrepresented God to the people and was banned from the promised land. Jesus is being called again to act in presumption that God will care for him. To test God's faithfulness. And in the face of this, Jesus responds in clear dependence on God's expressed path for his life. He refuses to test God to take the quick and easy way out. He trusts in God's means to accomplish God's ends. So, a couple questions then. Can God be trusted with every need we have? Maybe uh, you don't really lack much. We don't really in the U.S. Uh, But maybe you do. Maybe you're experiencing a, a very specific, intense need right now. Do you still see God as the supplier of that need? We often misunderstand the nature of need and the depth of our dependence on God. As we enjoy life, its riches, its complexities, its wonder, its beauty, we enjoy God through these things. In and through such joy, God cries out, I am here. Enjoy me. Enjoy these things. James 1.17 confirms that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who doesn't know any change. Our dependence on God extends to every level of our being. He can supply our every need. Also, what part of God's path for your life seems just too difficult? Where are you being tempted to take shortcuts? Often the Christian life is difficult. It's a path of suffering, difficulty, hunger, maybe not physical, but there are things we long for, wish we could have, but we can't, or we have to have them a particular way because we have limits on us, right? But also remember, it was the Spirit of God leading Jesus out into the desert, into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. This journey into the wilderness is initiated by God. Satan seeks an opportunity to, Satan seeks an opportunity to exploit it, Yet our Savior responds in meekness and submission that regardless of any logical or compelling desires or calls to other things, to pursue alternatives, God's way is the best way. We very often, I know I'm this way, we seek the most effective, pragmatic, or comfortable path. And that's, again, pragmatism is not inherently bad. Comfort is not inherently wrong. But they're pretty attractive idols. Really attractive idols, actually. Don't mistake effectiveness for God's favor. Simply because it works doesn't mean it's God's blessing. Do God's work God's way. You know, this story in Luke 4 doesn't portray Jesus engaged in a conversation with Satan as a visible figure. Fascinating observation that a commentator pointed out. Instead, the devil's voice appears as a string of natural ideas. Logical, plausible, attractive. And you might say they make a lot of sense. He even uses scripture at one point, right? Isn't that often how temptation and testing comes to each of us? It seems to make so much sense. Really, it does. It seems to make so much sense to step away from God's path, 
to seek our own way, to seek our own means to this end. Do not discount, church family, how deeply the promises of God connect to the path of God laid out before us. It isn't always a straight, direct, easy, logical, quick path. But oh, it's always the best. Always. It's always the path we walk with Christ. The Lord is near. It is the path that brings glory to God and brings our good. So during this Easter season, this time of Lent, where we reflect on sacrifice, where we take time for self-reflection, Remember that there's still a powerful shadow spread across our study today and through the coming weeks. Even here at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Luke as a gospel is organized chronologically, or pardon me, geographically. Geographically, it's not organized chronologically. So Luke's narrative is less concerned with a a strict chronology and more concerned with the locations of Jesus' life and ministry. So the final temptation here in Luke 4 reveals the last great battleground between God and the devil. Jerusalem, the cross, the passion of Calvary, and the wonderful victory earned there through Christ's sacrifice. His resurrection, new life afforded us through him, is over this passage even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this, this, is the ultimate confirmation of God's faithfulness to us. Generations longed for the Messiah, hearts burning in expectation for God's fulfillment. And here we find a beautiful confirmation of God's promises to humanity, to us today. And a powerful example for us to follow. Following Christ through testing confirms God's abiding faithfulness. Because following Christ through testing means trusting God's providence. And God is faithful in his providence. He provides for us in need and in comfort. Following Christ means doing, using God's means to do God's work. God's, God knows the best way to accomplish his work. And we must trust in it. And as we follow and use God's means to do God's work, we will see just how true and faithful and kind he is. Trust in our faithful God. Let's pray together. God, you are so kind to us and faithful, and we are thankful for this, and we are thankful for your recorded word that gives us guidance. We are thankful for Christ who died in our place. We trust in his work for our salvation, and we trust in his work for our growth and sanctification. May we continue to rely on your faithful providence over us and your your means to do your work. Guide us, direct us, and fill us with your spirit because we ask in Jesus' name, amen.